The following message features Rick Gamash and was recorded at the 6th Main Session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 Conference. It's entitled, Living Before the Triune God. Rick is the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Bloomington, Minnesota. Thanks for hanging out, being here for the last session. Uh, It has been just a blast to enjoy God's presence with you. To enjoy God's presence with you by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. We're going to be very precise in how we talk at our churches after this conference. It's been a blast to worship with you in song and over the word, and now I get to lead worship. So thanks for this honor, Bob. I appreciate it. And uh, fortunately for you all, I won't be singing. I will just talk. So, in fact, I, I usually sit in the front row, my church, and sing as loudly and as badly and as off-key as I want, and no one can hear me. And I realized when I was sitting there that all week long, I've been doing that with people in front of me. And so I just want to apologize, because I think there's a bunch of people out there thinking, I hope he's a better preacher than he is singer. <laughs> so I'm sorry if you sat in front of me for any of the sessions. Um, Hopefully this will be a little better. The assignment Bob gave me was uh, to answer the question as we get ready to depart now and go back to real life, to ask what difference does the Trinity make? That's huge. And we've been answering that question all week long. And he asked me to answer that question under the title, Living Before the Triune God. So that, that's our agenda, and that's the title of the sermon, only I replaced the uh, subtitle that was in parentheses that used to say, bringing it all together, that word all terrified me, and uh, so I took that out, and I put in this subtitle. So it's, it's living before the triune God as elect exiles. Living before the triune God as elect exiles. And I get that phrase from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So instead of attempting the impossible task of answering our question and staying faithful to my title by examining what the entire Bible has to say, I'm just going to throw my anchor down into 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And, and the fluke or the hook of the anchor is going to catch on that phrase, elect exiles. So we'll answer the question and try to be faithful to the title by remaining mostly tethered to this one text. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, or if you prefer, turn your Bibles on and scroll down to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Then I'll pray for God's help, and then we'll mine these verses for the gold that's there. 1 Peter 1. 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Well, Father, let grace be multiplied to us now, your elect exiles. 
you please do that? And let, let your word preached now be a conduit of that grace. Your word is living and it's active and it's powerful. So release your powerful grace now as your word is preached. And let there be power to encourage. Let there be power to strengthen. Let there be power to transform. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we confess together that we can't hope to understand and we can't hope to apply these words accurately without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who breathed out this word. So please send your spirit now to be the interpreter of your word and the one who applies it to our hearts. Open our our minds and hearts to your Bible, Holy Spirit, and open your Bible to our minds and hearts. All for the sake of our joy and for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you notice as we read the text, something that just blows my mind whenever I read these verses. Before the Apostle Peter even gets to his formal salutation and greeting, which is, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, that's his greeting. So in other words, before Peter even says hi, he references the doctrine of election and draws attention to our triune God in the introduction to his letter. And this is Peter. This is open mouth, insert foot, Peter. This is rough and gruff, blue collar fisherman, Peter. This is lack of formal education, Peter. And he begins his letter with two of the most gloriously complex and mind-bending doctrines in the entire Bible. I wonder if theology matters. There's no need to wonder. Theology matters. That's what this whole week has been about. What we think about God and what we think about ourselves in relation to God really matters, right? I mean, we we know that. And Peter isn't interested in any puny theology of a puny God. He doesn't shy away from the most mysterious doctrines because our God is not puny. We are. Our minds are puny. And God is infinitely wise. And he's majestically complex. And he's wonderfully beyond our complete comprehension. That's what makes him God. And Peter wants us to know him in all his mysterious bigness. The letter itself, the letter of 1 Peter, is really a comprehensive approach to the Christian life. It's filled to the brim with practical, life-changing exhortations and challenges and encouragement, which you know well because you've read it over and over. And so you know that the tone of the letter is, is urgent and intense, which isn't surprising coming from Peter. There are 30 imperatives or commands in this letter. That's an average of one command for every three verses. And they all flow 
All those commands flow from this big, rich theology with which Peter opens his letter. He's writing to a group of churches, and the purpose in writing is clear. He states it outright later in the letter, towards the end, 1 Peter 5.12, he says this, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God Stand firm in it. That's why he's writing. That's why he begins this letter the way he does. He's concerned that the members of these churches scattered across what's now the country of Turkey, he's concerned that they would stand firm in God's grace. And God is concerned that we too, all of us, would stand firm, that nothing No scheme of the devil, no temptation to sin, no lure of the world, no trials in life, no persecution for our faith, that nothing would knock us from the grace of God, but that through it all, we would stand firm. And Peter gets to it right in the opening sentence. And he gets to it by reminding us who we are and whose we are. That's how we stand firm in the grace of God. We remember who we are and whose we are. So, who are we? Well, he tells us in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's who we are. Elect exiles. That is a profound description of not only Peter's original audience, but of every Christian in this room. We are elect exiles. That's who we are. That's who we are in relation to the world we live in and who we are in relation to God. We are elect exiles. That's our identity. And Peter wants us to get our identity right from the beginning. Because if we don't get it right, there will be identity theft. The devil wants us to be confused about our identity. He wants us to believe that we are how we feel. Or we are what we look like. Or we are how people treat us. Or we are what our parents said about us. Or we are what we earn. Or maybe he's simply telling you you're stupid or hopeless or beyond God's reach or useless to his kingdom. Just a fool. Our culture confuses us about identity. Every time we turn on the television, every time we go on the internet, every time we walk through a mall, every time we drive down the road, we're being told what our identity is. You are what you eat. You are what you drive. You are what you wear. You are what people perceive you to be. You are what you want yourself to be. But Peter doesn't want any of that stuff to shape and form how we understand ourselves. He wants us to know who we truly are in relation to the world and in relation to God. And our identity is elect exile. So let's look at each of those words a little closer 
in order to better understand who we are. And we're going to start with the second word first. You are an exile. I am an exile. That's who we are in relation to the world. We are God's pilgrim people. We're on a journey, but we haven't arrived yet. We have no permanent place in this world and in this life. We are resident aliens. This earth in its present condition is not our home. It doesn't feel like home. It doesn't quite fit. Yes, we're a functioning part of society. We have a job. We speak the language. We have friends and neighbors. We're in relationship with them, but we're not a citizen. We belong to another country. And so we don't share the values and customs of this country. So we don't enjoy all the benefits of citizenship here. We're here on a passport. So not expected to stay forever. And so we will feel dissatisfied here. We will struggle. We will feel restless and homesick because we're not home yet. That's how you're supposed to feel. You not quite feel at home here in this world. That's good. That's a good thing. You're supposed to be homesick. If we try to make this world our home, if we treat it like home, if we get too comfortable here, we will eventually be miserable. We weren't ultimately made for this world. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're treated like exiles and strangers in this world. We will be misunderstood. We will offend. People will think we're strange. Some might even consider us dangerous. I mean, let's face it, we're weird. We love our enemies. When someone hits us, we turn the other cheek. We boast in our weakness. We consider others more significant than ourselves. We rejoice even when grieved by fiery trials. We give our riches away in order to store them up. We consider ourselves blessed when we're persecuted. We are weird. We're weird exiles. We're strange strangers. We're odd aliens here. And so we're not at home. That's who we are in relation to the world. But that's not the most important thing about us. If we stop there and just look out horizontally at the fact that we're exiles, well, that does not sound like good news. In fact, it sounds like grief and sadness, and heartbreak, and it can be. Peter is very realistic about it. Here's what he says, as exiles will be grieved by various trials, chapter 1, verse 6. Our sinful passions wage war against our soul, chapter 2, verse 11. We're called to suffer here, chapter 2, verse 21. We will be reviled and slandered for our good behavior, chapter 3, verse 16. We will be maligned for not joining the world in its debauchery, chapter 4, verse 4. We'll be insulted for the name of Christ, chapter 4, verse 14. That's the life of an exile. 
So we need that other word. We're not merely exiles. We are elect exiles. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's Nazi moron. Elect exiles. To be an exile is to be rejected. But to be elect is to be selected. So we are the selected rejected. And we are selected by God and so rejected by the world. The world did not exile us. God made us exiles by choosing us. God chose us out of the world. That's the God-centered explanation of our exile. That's the God-centered explanation of why we don't feel at home here. And Peter tells us that we're elect first. It's the first thing he says about us because it's the most important thing about us. God chose you. Peter wants us to get this. He wants this to identify us. This is who we really are. God's chosen. We are the ones that the king of the universe has chosen to be his people and to benefit from his protection and to inhabit his kingdom. Our identity is not defined by the world. Our identity is defined by the fact that God chose us out of the world. He chose us to be his elect exiles, and his election of us is the main meaning of our life. And knowing that is tremendously practical. The doctrine of election is tremendously practical. It's utterly crucial to living upright and holy lives in this world. It's utterly crucial for successfully navigating our way through this land as an exile. It's utterly crucial for living like free and joyful exiles in a hostile foreign land. It's utterly crucial for making sense of the pain of living as an exile, which is why Peter's not done yet telling us about our election. He wants us to understand our identity, who we are. We are elect exiles. And he wants us to know whose we are, which he reminds us of by telling us three things about our election in verse 2. He's telling us whose we are in verse 2 so that we stand firm in the grace of the gospel as his elect exiles. We are God's. That's whose we are. We are the fathers, we are the sons, and we are the spirits. We are God the fathers, God the sons, God the spirits. Peter wants us to understand our life in relation to whose we are, so he just overwhelms us with God in this verse. He engulfs us in God. So look at it again, verse 2. Three prepositional phrases that modify the word elect in verse 1. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. 
three dimensions of election that Peter wants us to know and understand so that we know and understand our identity in relation to God and so stand firm. And each dimension, I'm sure you noticed, is related to a person of the Trinity. Election is rooted in the foreknowledge of God the Father. Election is experienced in or by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of our election is obedience to God the Son. The entire Trinity is involved in all of our life from beginning to end, each committed to distinct actions, yet all united in the common goal of the full, final, eternal salvation of God's elect exiles. Like Mike Reeves said a couple nights ago, there is no salvation apart from the Trinity. So let's look at each of those dimensions of election and begin with the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So God's foreknowledge is the basis of our election, his choice of us. Foreknowledge is the origin of our being made God's chosen sons and daughters. It's the origin of God being our father. So what is God's foreknowledge? Well, let me tell you some things that it's not. Foreknowledge does not merely mean that God was way, way back aware of you, who you are. It doesn't merely mean that he had previous knowledge that you'd exist. Foreknowledge doesn't merely mean that he observed us. It doesn't mean that he saw beforehand our responding to the gospel with faith and repentance. And so based on that chose us. To foreknow does not mean to know about. God knows everything about everyone. But this word is not about cognition. The word foreknow means much more than that in the Bible. It is a big, rich, relational term. It means to set regard upon. So in eternity past, God regarded you. He knew you with a particular interest and affection. Foreknow is almost synonymous with for love. Long before there was time, God loved you, Christian. From before the foundation of the world, God knew that he would create you and choose to love you and save you and embrace you as his treasured possession. He chose you because he loved you. And he loved you because he chose to. I mean, Christians debate about this, and we should simply delight in this. God chooses to love those who would never choose to love him. He loves us first. He pursues us first. God didn't choose me because I'm good. I'm not. God chose to love me because he's good. And he did it when the universe was still just a thought in his mind. 
before even space was created, when there was nothing but our triune God, his heart moved with love for his elect. Our names were written on his heart. He loves us with an everlasting love, from everlasting to everlasting, and he loves us as a father. We are elect according to the forelove of God the Father. Now, do you see how practical this is for enabling exiles to stand firm in God's grace? Although we're rejected here, where we're living, we belong to God the Father. We're his adopted children. We're now members of his family. The hardships we face as exiles here are not a surprise to God. He foreknew them. In fact, he foreordained them for our good. The loving discipline of a father who has only our good in mind. Nothing that happens to us is absurd and meaningless. Everything that happens to us is the loving plan of the sovereign God who made us his elect exiles. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And we're elect, second dimension of our election now, in or by the sanctification of the Spirit. We are elect exiles by the sanctification of the Spirit. This is how election, God's loving choice of us, comes to expression in us. We are chosen by God the Father in eternity past And then God the Spirit takes that eternal decree of the Father and consecrates us for him. That's what it means to be sanctified. We are set apart by God for God. And the Spirit does that, which John so powerfully preached on yesterday morning. This point in my sermon is just an exclamation point to that masterful sermon. Just a punctuation mark compared to that sermon. The Spirit comes and he takes what's common, you and me, and he makes us special. He makes us God's own, his own treasured possession. That's what the Holy Spirit did for every Christian in this room. He gave us a new position in relation to God. He set us apart He ripped us away from the world and he joined us to our brother Jesus so that all the benefits of Christ now belong to us. His holiness, his righteousness are now ours by faith and we are right now declared to be holy and righteous before God by God. The Spirit gave us a new position and he gave us a new power so that we are now growing more holy. To be sanctified is to be transformed and to be being transformed so that we become what we've already been declared to be, holy, blameless, above reproach. Now, let's think about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in terms of our adoption. Have you you noticed 
that this glorious doctrine of adoption has been a sub-theme throughout this entire conference. God wants us to get this. We've already made a big deal of the fact that we're chosen by God according to his forelove of us, and he loves us like a father, chose to make us his sons and daughters. Well, the Holy Spirit has a role in bringing that about. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, 15 through 17. I'm reminding you of what we heard on Thursday morning. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us a new position, adopted sons and daughters of God our Father. And he gives us a new power. My middle son is adopted. His name is Yaroslav. He was born in Russia. We call him Yari. He just turned 16. And when he was 14 months old, I adopted him as my son. And I did some things to make that happen. I filled out a lot of paperwork and paid a lot of bills. Got on an airplane with my wife, Delane, and flew to Russia. And I appeared before a Russian judge, and Yaroslav Aleksevich Paragon became Yaroslav John Stephen Gamash. And he took the status of being my adop- adopted son. And I welcomed him into my household with the personality and the looks and the health that he had from his biological parents. He had some special needs, so I made sure he had the surgeries he needed to improve his health. And I continue to try to wield an influence on his personality and his temperament. And I meet his basic needs. And I love him with the same love that I have for my other sons and daughters. But God does so much more for us when he adopts us. And there is no human analogy. When God adopts, he doesn't merely do surgery and wield an influence. God moves into our hearts. He gives us his spirit. And Peter says, 2 Peter 1.4, that God makes us partakers of the divine nature. I mean, let that land on you, Christian, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. You are a partaker of the divine nature. God does something for us that I cannot do for Yari. I can give Yari my name. I can bestow sonship on him. I can love him, but I cannot make him partake of my nature. But God does that for us when he adopts us by his spirit. He puts in us the spirit of our brother Jesus. And you know what happens? John told us yesterday morning, he used the exact same phrase. It's right here in my manuscript. We begin to take on a family resemblance. We begin to look like our brother Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so now we move on to the next dimension of election. The very purpose of our election for obedience 
to Jesus Christ. We are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus. We were chosen by God to take on a family resemblance, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And it's a resemblance that's apparent now in every Christian and growing in every Christian. We, we have the Holy Spirit in us to empower us with the grace for obedience to Jesus. Grace will be multiplied to us so that we can obey. That's why Peter prayed for it at the end of verse 2. This is what it means to be God's elect exiles. He will give us all the grace we need to obey all his commands. Isn't that good news? All 30 commands in the book of 1 Peter, God will multiply grace to us to obey them. He'll multiply grace to us to be sober-minded and to set our hope on grace and to not be conformed to our sinful passions. He'll multiply grace to be holy in all our conduct and to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He'll multiply grace to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He'll multiply grace to proclaim the excellencies of God and to do good deeds and to honor everyone and to fear God. He'll multiply grace to wives to be subject to their own husbands and grace to husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. He'll multiply grace to be tender-hearted and humble. He'll multiply grace to denounce debauchery and to pray and to show hospitality and to not complain and to serve one another. He'll multiply grace to rejoice in our sufferings and entrust our souls to our faithful creator and cast all our anxieties on him. He'll multiply grace to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. And that is very good news for elect exiles. That's living life before the triune God. That's the difference the Trinity makes. That's how we live when we remember who we are and whose we are. And all of it is possible by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Verse 2 of our text. In eternity past, God the Father went to Jesus and said, In love... I have chosen for myself a people. Their names are on my heart. I've set my regard on them. They will be my elect exiles on earth. But in order to make them my children, I must deal with their sin. Are you, my son, willing to be the exile in order to make them my elect exiles? Will you leave my bosom, your home, to go to them where you won't even have a place to lay your head? Will you take their sins in your body as you hang on a cross outside the city gate? Will you be forsaken by me as I pour out all my wrath at their sin on your head? Will you be abandoned so that I can bring them in? 
Will you take the hellish exile they deserve so that I could bring them home? And Jesus said, yes, Father, I'll go. I'll be the exile. I'll suffer and die so that they can be sprinkled with my blood and made clean. I will die and rise again to make them adoptable. I will die and rise again to guarantee their sanctification by the Spirit. I will die and rise again to purchase their forgiveness when they don't obey and to purchase their power to obey. God's sovereign election is the foundation of the gospel and the gospel makes God's election possible. And there is no election, there is no gospel, there is no salvation without the Trinity. Now, I'm finished with our text, but I'm not quite finished with the sermon. I want to go a little deeper into the letter of 1 Peter and tie up what feels to me like a couple of loose strings. And then I want to make one very brief point of application. So first, loose string. I went to great lengths earlier to make the point that being in exile means that we are rejected by the world. We don't live by the world's rules and values. We don't fit in. So some people are going to misunderstand us. Some think we're strange. Some be offended. Some might even think we're dangerous. Some might get downright hostile. But as we live before our triune God, remembering who we are and whose we are, reveling in the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ, when we live in the Trinitarian reality that we are elect exiles, that's not the only response we should expect. There's another, and it's glorious. Later, in chapter 2, Peter refers to us as exiles again. Here's what he says, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, so there's sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Peter's using that word to refer to all unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so more sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's the hostility that we've already mentioned, there's the slander, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a much different response. The call to be in exile is not a call to withdraw from the world. We are resident aliens. Being countercultural is not a call to cultural isolation. Our life before the triune God is meant to have a public face in this world. God intends for it to have a missional focus, an evangelistic focus. When we live as elect exiles, some will get angry. 
but others will see the beauty of Christ in the way we live and come to him. They will glorify him. Isn't that amazing? People are called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light when they see our sanctified, obedient life. As elect exiles, we will be extraordinarily offensive and incredibly attractive all at the same time. Some will ridicule and mock because our honorable conduct makes them so uncomfortable, but all of a sudden, someone will see and they'll be attracted. And when no one else is around, they'll come up to you and like 1 Peter 3.15 says they will, they will ask for the reason for the hope that is in you. And you'll tell them and they'll get saved. And they'll come with you to worship God West 2015 or 16 or whenever we're having it again. Next loose end. I said earlier that being in exile means that we are God's pilgrim people. On a journey, not yet arrived, not home. But I said almost nothing about home. So what's home? Peter tells us what we can expect when we get home. Chapter 1, verse 4. So just a couple verses after our text. He says that by God's great mercy, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. That's what's awaiting elect exiles when we get home. We are God's children. We saw that in Romans 8. That fact that we are God's children means that we're his heirs. We are co-heirs with our brother Jesus. Like Mike Reeves said a couple days ago, everyone who has the spirit of God has the very status of the son, Jesus himself. So we're co-heirs with our brother, Jesus. You ever wondered what Jesus is the heir of? Hebrews 1-2 tells us, Jesus is the heir of all things. So follow that. We are fellow heirs with Christ. And Jesus is the heir of everything. Therefore, we are heirs of everything. It's all ours. Every mountain, every tree, every beach, every lake, every bird, every creeping thing on this planet, and not only this planet, but our solar system. Everything means everything. We're heirs of the solar system, 7.3 billion miles across. Heirs of the sun and the moon and Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. And not only this solar system, but our galaxy, the Milky Way, with all its 200 billion stars it contains. And not only are we the heir of this galaxy, but we are the heirs of the 180 billion galaxies in our universe. And it's all ours, a benefit of sonship. And here's some really good news. It's not this rundown, sin infested, decaying, cursed universe that we inherit. We inherit the new universe, the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, how do I know that? 
Well, look at the way Peter describes the inheritance. I mean, this blows the mind, and Peter intends for it to blow our minds. Our inheritance is so unimaginably vast and so indescribably wonderful that the only way that Peter can explain it is to tell us some things that it's not. It's not perishable. It's not defiled. It's not fading, which means it's otherworldly. It's a better inheritance than anything we can possibly imagine this side of glory. It's imperishable. Everything here dies. That's why it doesn't feel like home. But not so our inheritance. Our inheritance is free from death and decay. The splendor of the new heavens and the new earth we inherit is that everything will be refreshed and renewed forever. Always vibrant, always fresh, always new, imperishable. And our inheritance is undefiled. Everything here is dirty and tainted. Moral impurity has smeared it with filth. That's why this doesn't feel like home, but not so our inheritance. There will be no physical or moral impurity. The splendor of the new heavens and the new earth we inherit is that there will be no more sin to fight, no more broken relationships, no more bondage, no more addiction, undefiled. And our inheritance is unfading. Everything here is subject to the ravages of time. Everything gets old and wears out. We get used to things and they lose their allure. That's why this doesn't feel like home, but not so our inheritance. The splendor of the new heavens and the new earth is that there will always be new beauties to discover, new joy, new majesty, new glory, new grandeur, new sweetness, new brightness, and we will never get used to it. We will always be dazzled by it, unfading. But you know what? That's not our home. If God gave us everything, just like he promises, and all of it imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, but didn't give us himself, it wouldn't be home. God does not promise us everything only. Our greatest inheritance is these words from Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God is our greatest inheritance. God is our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. God is our home. And when we're home in him, there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Psalm 1611. Charles Spurgeon came to this verse and he wrote this. It is joy to have heaven. It is joy to possess a life now to fit me for heaven. But the greatest of all is to have my God, my own Savior's God, 
my father, my own savior's father, to be all my own. God himself has said, I will be their God and they shall be my people. He has not given you earth and heaven only, though that were much. He has given you the heaven of heavens himself. God is the true home for all elect exiles. That's where we're heading. Second loose string, all tied up. Here's the application. This is a worship conference, and so worship is the application. I mean, what else do you do in response to such truths? It's what Peter did. In verse 3 of chapter 1, so right after highlighting the Trinitarian glory of our election, our salvation, he says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glorious truth about who God is and what he's done and what he will do for his elect exiles is so beautiful, so magnificent, so breathtaking. It's all such good news that the apostle simply explodes in exaltation. What he perceived with his mind dropped down and jump-started his heart so that he couldn't control himself. He couldn't stop his pen. He had to give vent to the affection for God that ignited inside of him in response, and that's worship. That's worship in spirit and in truth. We feel the wonder and the majesty and the fiery passion in our hearts at the truth that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and it can't be contained. It must be written. It must be spoken. It must be shouted. It must be sung. Let's pray. So, Father, together we say, blessed be your name. Our hearts are ablaze with affection for you, our sovereign electing God. Thank you for setting your love on us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for grace to obey you. Mostly thank you for the sprinkling of Christ's blood that washes us clean and makes it possible to come into your presence makes it possible for exiles to come home to you. Multiply grace to us now, as Peter prayed, that we would go from here and stand firm in the grace of your gospel. For our everlasting, ever-increasing joy and for your eternal honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Rick Gamash entitled, Living Before the Triune God. It was given at the 6th Main Session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God West 2014 Conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemen.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.